This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. If we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. The introduction to the volume two of our report explains that decision. That was special counsel, counsel, excuse me, Robert Mueller speaking earlier today in Washington, officially resigning his post, closing the office of the special counsel, but maybe not closing the discussion that will ensue about the findings of that investigation. Here to help us understand all that, Shannon Pettypiece. She is White House correspondent for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from the nation's capital, our bureau there. So, Shannon, help us understand what we heard from special counsel Mueller and what the reaction has been both from the GOP and the Democrats. So it was essentially a five-minute or so rendition of his actual report. Um, As far as any news that he had in there, it it stayed very closely to what has been written in this report. But I think what the significance of it is, is that here now you have a very clear um, soundbite of him. Uh, The report is long. Uh, It can be tedious to get through. Um, Most members of Congress didn't read it. I'm sure most members of the public didn't. I don't blame them for that. um, But I think the significance of this is having him come out in a clear way, um, a soundbite type way that works on television where you don't have a legal analyst or a reporter interpreting it. You have him in his very own words um, saying that um, I think the most significant part here is that he felt like he couldn't make a determination about whether or not the president um, committed a crime because of the guidelines he was working in. And that if he felt the president had not committed a crime, he would have come out and said that, and he is not saying that. So you can imply what the other side of that argument is. So the point is, right, Shannon, that he – right, his choices were president did nothing wrong. That mm-hmm. was my conclusion. The other right. is what we got from him saying I couldn't make a conclusion about that. Because of justice and, – and not I, – and I think the way that the, you know, the president his allies have wanted to – um, frame it is that he couldn't make a conclusion because, oh, it could go one way or it could go another way. I'm just really not sure. He was saying very clearly, I couldn't make a conclusion because the Justice Department guidelines say that you cannot indict a sitting president, uh, that that would be unconstitutional and that there are other means to, um, you know, accusing or determining if a president has committed a crime than a criminal investigation or prosecution by the Justice Department, i.e., impeachment. So that is where we've seen it open a door to Democrats in Congress to say, look, Mueller is telling us he wasn't going to be the one who would be able to pursue charges against the president because you can't charge a sitting president when it comes to obstruction of justice. So that means the ball is in our court and you're hearing this sort of increased call from Democrats in in a bit more stronger language uh, than they've used before about 
beginning impeachment proceedings and moving down this path. I feel like it's the day of whittling down lots of words into kind of small, a small synopsis, if you will. We got that from Mr. Mueller. You had the president then also whittling down his response on Twitter. And he said, nothing changes from the Mueller report. There was insufficient evidence. And therefore, in our country, a person is innocent. The case is closed. Thank you. Is the president right or wrong then? Um. Well, uh, I, I mean, <laughs> there um, wasn't necessarily insufficient evidence on obstruction of justice because uh, Mueller did lay out ten, at least ten scenarios uh, that could amount to obstruction of justice. But what Mueller was saying is that he is not in the position to be able to um, charge um, the president with that. And what this was, this investigation was a criminal investigation, and what his report was uh, under the guidelines was supposed to lay out people you were charging with a crime or an explanation for why you were not charging certain people with the crime. And we saw him go through a lot of the figures he investigated and explain why he was charging those people and why he wasn't. Uh, In the case of the president, uh, he said very clearly there are Justice Department guidelines that say you cannot charge a sitting president. Uh, The path for that is impeachment through Congress. And so he was not going to, um, you know, he could not formally charge the president. But when you look at the report, he then goes on to lay out a number of instances that he says could amount to obstruction of justice. Um, So, I mean, I suppose this is all still quite complicated, but I think if today does anything, um, it it gives that soundbite, as I said, in Mueller's words, uh, that can be played on TV, uh, played over and over again on cable news, uh, to explain to people a bit what Mueller's view was on this, even though it's very similar to what's in his written report. Shannon Pettypiece is White House correspondent for Bloomberg. She joined us on the phone from our bureau there in the nation's capital. And, and Carol, just want to bring a couple headlines that have crossed while we've been having this conversation. Uh, Vice President Joe Biden's campaign putting out a statement. This is via Bill Russo, a spokesman for uh, former Vice President Biden, saying Vice President Biden agrees with Speaker Pelosi that no one would relish what would certainly be a divisive impeachment process, but that it may be unavoidable if this administration continues on its path. Congress must do everything in its power to hold this administration to account. That is what Congress is doing and should do, colon, continue to investigate. We'll see where it all goes. And we have heard, we're starting Mm. to hear a little bit more. We have not heard from uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. We are starting to hear from some of the candidates on the Democratic side. I assume that will continue through the course of the day. But it comes down to Nancy Pelosi. And we know early on in her tenure now as, you know, second time around as Speaker of the House, you know, had talked about really wasting too much political capital. But we do wonder if something has shifted. Uh, and we certainly feel like the rhetoric between the, the president and uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker uh, Pelosi, has changed over the last couple of weeks. So I do wonder if her tone in terms of a possible impeachment campaign against the president has changed as well. And we'll have to see how this all plays out. So... Interesting story on the Bloomberg. It's among our most read, and this has, and we talked about it a little bit earlier, about how Beijing is gearing up to use its dominance of rare earths 
uh, to hit back at its deepening trade war with Washington. So there's a lot of stuff going on as we continue to watch the U.S.-China trade uh, negotiations go on and hit snafus, if you will. Uh, so we're watching that. Meantime, those attending KeyBank's annual industrials and basic materials conference in Boston today, watching that ongoing trade war between these two economic and market giants. Let's head to Boston. That's where we find Phil Gibbs. He's metals equity research analyst at Cleveland-based KeyBank Capital Markets. Phil, good to have you back here uh, with Jason and myself. I do wonder, and I know um, rare earths is not necessarily your world, but I do wonder about some of the conversations that you folks are having uh, within the metals world, within the industrials world, because of the U.S.-China trade conflict. Well, Carol and Jason, thanks for having me. You certainly uh, made me smile with that with that intro song. Um, Took you know, back I, to your childhood, think, just head banging. Is that what it was? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, I think investors are really trying to navigate the trade landscape, and it's been it's been challenging. And, and that's why our theme for this year has been the show must go on, uh, which definitely takes its flair from that classic Queen song that you played. And you know, our thought all along that this would be a very long game withdrawn out theater from both sides, given a, a, a very stark difference in philosophy, and that's playing out. We don't think the trade war in itself has really hurt the metals group, which we are uh, strong in, but the strong dollar and very questionable late cycle capital allocation decisions by the U.S. steel producers to target lots of capacity increases has. And accordingly, we've advised our clients over the last 12 months to to sell strength and stick with the best in breed stocks in the space like Nucor and Reliance. Uh, on a relative basis. Well, and it does feel, not to be dramatic or overly dramatic, Phil, but it does feel like this is spreading, right? You're starting to hear more from CEOs. You're starting to see this ripple effect of both business customers and consumers maybe anticipating that this, A, isn't going to end anytime soon, and B, the fact that it's not going to end anytime soon means that pricing is going to come into play or prices may rise. Somebody's got to uh, account for this literally and and figuratively. So where's the most pain going to be felt as you take it down that next level? Yeah, and I mean, I think it's I think it's good to start with who I think is going to be the relative winners here, and then and then we can go into sure. some of the some of the companies that could be in a, in a little bit more pain. So I think Nucor and Reliance Steel, you know, as we've talked about uh, earlier, definitely have very resilient and defensive business models with limited fixed costs. These are also companies that have investment grade balance sheets, strong dividend growth history very strong through cycle return on capital. And, you know, although it seems like it could be light years away and, and, and never happen, but they do also have optionality to a potential U.S. infrastructure program, which, you know, it is on the president's agenda. It just currently, you know, is a little bit on ice given, you know, given everything else that's going on. You know, and I would say relative losers, you know, while U.S. steel right now appears, you know, very washed out, uh, given the stock's down a lot year-to-date, the company is, is likely going to remain in a very precarious competitive position over the next couple of years. Uh, they have a very aggressive multi-year CapEx program, and they're going to have to battle uh, a siege of new new low-cost capacity coming online uh, in 2021 and 2022 from, from some of the, the beneficiaries that, that we talked about, like Nucor. So, you know, I would say Nucor and Reliance, you know, definitely stick with those based on the backdrop that we see and, and, and U.S. still, despite, you know, the weakness in the stock. I, I think I think I don't I just don't think it's time yet. Phil, do you think at all about 
how the supply chains and global supply chains might change as a result of some of the trade conflict that's going on between the U.S. and China right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think about that a lot, and, and the supply chains have definitely shifted. You've heard of a lot of industrial companies trying to pre-buy materials. Given the trade tensions, we've heard a lot of that happening uh, late last year, early this year. You mentioned Rare Earths, uh, one of the companies that I follow uh, in the small cap universe, a company called Lux for Holdings, LXFR. It's been a great stock over the last couple of years, one that we've really liked. Um, they've, they essentially have a six to 12 month safety stock of rare earths because they saw this coming and, you know, they didn't want to be beholden to what China may or may not do. So a company like that's going to be in very good position to benefit from this and, and not be deterred by a lot of the volatility. But, um, right. you know, I wouldn't be, mis- I, you know, I, I wouldn't be mistaken here that, uh, a lot of the companies are adjusting, right. you know, a lot of shift shifting around of supply chains. And that's just one example. And, they're also changing buying patterns, which may make earnings uh, in the industrial landscape a lot a lot lumpier, I would say, than they normally would be. Right. All right, Phil, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much. Phil Gibbs, Metals Equity Research Analyst at KeyBank Capital Markets, joining us on the phone from Boston. Can't go wrong with Rush on a Wednesday afternoon. Rush. Just keeping it going here in the second hour of Bloomberg Business Week. A great story uh, on the Bloomberg, and it's on the Bloomberg today and at Bloomberg.com. Ethan Bronner is the writer. He's a senior editor at Bloomberg. We put him against all things crazy going on in South America, I believe. We'll get a check on that with Joel Weber, the editor of Business Week. That's a full-time job, and then some. It's a (laughs) full-time job. So Ecuador is now on your radar screen owing to Julian Assange. Well, Julian Assange put it onto everybody's radar yes. screen. I've been watching it for a year or two, but uh, that's right. I mean, the, the the fact that Julian Assange was thrown out of the Ecuadorian embassy in London was a sign that the president of Ecuador, a man named Lenin Moreno, was moving in a new direction for the country. At least it was the most public sign for many. And what that direction was, was away from a kind of authoritarian leftism associated with his predecessor and with Venezuela and with Nicaragua and Bolivia and toward a kind of more middle-of-the-road pro-Washington approach. Why? Well, that's a good question. Um, His answer is that he discovered that uh, the previous approach was corrupt and inefficient and and was going to run Ecuador into the ground the way Venezuela was being run into the ground, and he'd be damned if he was going to oversee such a move. But what truly led to his change is a little bit of a mystery, to be honest, I think that, you know, people are, it isn't clear. He did have a huge trauma in his life 21 years ago. He was in a bakery uh, buying bread and was shot in the back and ended up in a wheelchair. And he mm-hmm. said to me in the interview we did with him that he spent four years in deep depression and emerged from it a different man, much more open to a different way of thinking about things. Jill Weber, come on in on this. So I, I thought the the... The thing that made this so interesting is obviously the Assange element, because for years now, uh, Ecuador basically harbored him in seven years in in London, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden that changed. And when you kind of dot connect some dots, Ethan, what what were the what what did those dots look like that finally led to his eviction? I mean, 
Moreno says that when he took over two years ago, when he was elected, he saw Assange as a pebble in his shoe. He is an, an inherited problem. And Assange was already misbehaving at the embassy. Um, but in the course of his first months, he realized that the debt of the country was much larger than his predecessor had allowed, that the Odebrecht scandal spreading across the region was affecting his vice president and those around him, and he needed to come up with a new way forward. And it is clear that the U.S. was not going to help him until he got rid of Assange. It's so fascinating if you look at, and the, the magazine covers this so well, about all the emerging economies, particularly Latin America, right, that are in trouble and they're align- who they are aligning themselves, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's the United States, and you're seeing kind of people right. take up and, their sides right now. Basically, you know, this is a, a body of work that Ethan's been chipping away at. Yeah. Pretty soon he's just going to have a parachute. Um, and we're just going <laughs> to put him in a plane and say, we're go. We're going to have to put him in the Ecuadorian uh, yeah. embassy. And, and wherever you fall, <laughs> just tell us the story. Protect him, protect How him. How does that sound, Ethan? That sounds great. <laughs> so the, but, you know, the, the other one that was great was to talk about Venezuela, but not be in Venezuela, right? And for that one, Ethan went to Colombia and sort of used that as a mirror to, to talk about what was happening in Venezuela, but from Colombia. So I think all of these are really significant because the geopolitical situation of South America is really up for grabs right now. Yeah. And th- there are these new alliances that are basically being drawn in real time. And Assange happens to be a pawn, basically, in, in the latest chapter of that. That's right. And I mean, and, and it's true that Venezuela becomes this black hole for everything, mm-hmm. sucking everything in its direction. And the battle over Venezuela has shifted to these other countries. We haven't said that there are 300,000 refugees, Venezuelan refugees in Ecuador, as there are a million plus in Colombia. And so everything about the Venezuela battle is affecting these countries. And that's why whatever happens there is going to be massive. And so far, it doesn't look easy. Right. And I'm curious, too, about kind of the latest in what we're hearing from in terms of U.S. policy towards some of these countries, right? Right. So, you know, you had, there's, a, there's a diplomatic scramble on yeah. right now in Norway, and there's going to be a meeting also in Central America to try to bring together the elements in Venezuela. But the United States is not in favor of this move because they say that anything that involves Maduro is just going nowhere. Right. So interestingly, although the U.S. led the diplomatic maneuver to recognize Juan Guaido Mm -hmm. and to shift the world's attitude toward Venezuela. It is being somewhat marginalized right this minute as this other stuff happens. I don't think the marginalization will last forever. But what the U.S. can and is willing to do is extremely unclear. An invasion seems completely off the table at the moment. And in this environment, clarity is kind of what you need, right? (laughs) It would be nice. Okay, so parachute, where are you going next? (laughs) I have to think about it. I think Brazil. There you go. I was, ah. I was, that was what I'd hoped you'd say. There you go. All right. Well, see you in Sao Paulo. Which will play a big role in the Venezuela story, too. There you go. It's all connected. Ethan Bronner, senior editor for Bloomberg, our South American expert. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Thank you both so much. Great story. And you can find it on the Bloomberg and also online at Bloomberg.com. So do check that out. I'm driving my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. 
It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Randy Watts is back with us. Uh, good timing, too, because we have lots of questions about the markets. He's executive vice president, chief investment strategist at William O'Neill & Company. He's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Nice to have you back. Thanks for having me back, Carol and Jason. Hold on. We have questions about the markets, but first... Congratulations to UVA on the national championship in men's lacrosse from last weekend, following on the national championship for men's basketball. I think we talked about that the last time you were here. Only the third school in history to double up like that, UNC and Duke being the others. So let's get that out of the way. It's important. And uh, it's an it was an amazing run. They lost the first couple of games, you know, to start the year, and then yeah. and then went on a great run. Unbelievable goaltending in the finals, and yeah. great, great defense, and so many comeback wins toward the end of the season. It was really great to see. I love just watching this. <laughs> Can I just say, <laughs> just a couple of lax bros? I know, I know, I know. So let's talk about the markets because I do think it's an interesting point that we are in, and we've seen. Uh, kind of a negative sentiment in the equity markets. We've seen the inverted yield curve, and it seems to be persisting for a little bit here. How do you see it? What do the technicals tell you, Randy? So, so there's a lot to, to tell people yes. today about the technicals. The first is... Have they changed from like a month ago? They, they absolutely have changed. Okay. Uh, there's several things I'd like to point out. First, we obviously knew the market has already broken the 50-day moving average. If you look at the S&P, you know, it's now taken out that May 13th low and today, it's bouncing around above and below that 200-day moving average. Those are very you know, negative technical signals. But I'd like to try to frame it in perspective. This was a heck of a move from that December 24th low, right? The market went, went up you know, roughly uh, you know, 26% over 87 day, trading days. That's a big move. We think about oftentimes legs in the market. We define a leg as a 5% move either direction. A typical up leg is about 11% over 30 trading days. So to go 26% up over 87, that's a heck of a move. Well, that, I just, if I can break in for a second, like I am curious about what happens to technicals, especially when you do have dramatic moves in markets. Do the, are they, you know, how do you look at them? Do you look at them differently in terms of what they tell you, whether you're piercing a level to the upside or the downside? I, I think levels are important. It tells you something about sentiment and about momentum in the market. You know, the message we're giving investors right now is to stay cautious. To, to frame it, the market usually has at least one move from peak to trough of 10% in a given year. You know, we're only down six and change right now from the peak after a 26% run. So this is actually kind of normal action. Mm-hmm. If, if, you, if you look at, you know, since, since 1970, a typical down leg is usually about 8% over 17 trading days. Now, if you have a worse move, a correction, so to speak, of down 10% or more, you know, since 1970, we've had 23 of those where the market then went on and resumed the bull market and made a new high. So corrected the 10% and then went up and to then a new went, high. And you've had five times where it actually turned into a bear market. But, you know, a typical move down for this market would be 8 to 10%. And that would put you kind of 2,700 to 2,600. So right now, this action is kind of normal given the, the strength of the move up you had. All right. So the numbers tell you that it's normal, but it doesn't feel normal right now and is that just because of the rhetoric is that just because of 
a market, a bull market that's so long in the tooth, people seem nervous and and anxious and i know that's not a technical term literally and figuratively but but, emotions play into markets but why is that why is the sentiment the way that it is i think there's three things uh the first is obviously the 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 trade war with Mm -hmm. china that that's a big deal if you were to put a a 25 tariff on all u.s and china goods you know the estimates are that that would take about 50 basis points or half a percent out of u.s gdp so that that definitely matters second as we mentioned at the top you know, the 10-year to three-month curve has inverted to negative 12 basis points. That's the worst inversion since 2007. Historically, the three-month 10-year spread is a good predictor of the economy. It's about 90% accurate. And in the past, that has predicted a slowdown in the economy. Doesn't necessarily mean a recession, but a slowdown. And that really leads to earnings. But does it, before we get into earnings, sure. does that not have to, Randy, persist for a certain amount of time? Or as soon as you get the inversion, it usually says we're going to have a, de- a slowdown. Uh, not it, necessarily a recession, but at least a slowdown. It usually means you're going to have a slowdown, and that, and that slowdown is going to occur over the next 18 months or so. Uh, so, so, you know, it is a negative sign. There's no way to, to spin it as positive. We don't like to see that. It's definitely affecting the bond market and investors. Mm-hmm. If you look at the forward interest rate curve, Right now, investors are expecting three rate cuts by the Fed between now and the end of 2020. So that's a big change in sentiment. The the bond market is a lot more bearish right now than the stock market in terms of the economy. I still have a hard time getting my head around this idea that we're now talking about three rate cuts. I mean, and that, that to me just feels again technically such so dramatic from where we were you know when we were talking to you six months ago especially when consumers are so very confident right we talk about how important consumers are to the economy talk to us though a little bit about earnings another important metric to where things go so i think one thing that's important is that you know earnings estimates came down for the market really starting last september and the market really started rollover last year in the fall when estimates started to come down they're now starting to stabilize so if earnings estimates can stay kind of where they are for the year, and for the year analysts are looking for basically it's kind of kind of four to five percent earnings growth right now for the S and P, then I think this market is likely not entering a protracted bear market because of the support it's going to get on valuation from the bond market. The the S and P right now yields two percent, and the ten years at two point two. To me, stocks are a lot much more attractive at that level. Right. And I do wonder, and I remember someone, I want to say within the last year or so, saying that if we do get some kind of slowdown, it's to be expected considering how long this cycle has gone on, but it might be a touch and go. A little bit of slowdown, and then we kind of resume the momentum. I think that's a really likely scenario. We kind of bump, bump along yeah. in fits and starts, but, but I think the question for investors is, you know, how do you feel about the longer term? Right. Do you like stocks versus bonds? At these, you know, Right now, the market's only trading at 15 times the 2020 estimate. It's, it's not expensive. Right. It's gotten cheaper than it was a few months ago. All right. Randy Watts, always great to catch up with you. Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at William O'Neill & Company and a proud UVA Cavalier. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.